So this morning, that's what we're going to start talking about, is we're going to do a four-week journey talking about mercy, the mercy journey. It's based off a study by a group called Barna. Barna is a research company that talks to Christians and churches and learns about attitudes and actions and, and what's going on. I'm going to share some of that with you this morning as, as we understand what does that mean for God's people to be a people that are marked by mercy. And we're going to look at that over these four weeks in three specific areas. Uh, next weekend, if you look at the logo, next weekend we'll look at the one to the left, which is our homes. And then the following weekend in the green, we'll look at our church. And then the fourth weekend, we'll look at the world. But in order to understand what mercy looks like in our homes, in our church, and in the world, we first need to understand and know what does mercy look like in our lives and in our hearts. Because that mercy doesn't start with what we bring to this world, into our homes, into our churches, but mercy begins with what God brings to us. Because when we think about it, we live in this world that is very politically charged, a world that seems volatile, a world that seems to be always on edge, a world that desperately needs mercy, but a world that oftentimes doesn't display that same mercy that it desperately needs. In my blog this week, I talked about a game that I used to play and many children used to play growing up, the game of mercy. Anyone in here ever play that game of mercy? Be honest. How many of you played it? All right. It's where to you, two people would grasp hands, right? Or you would grasp both hands at the same time. And then someone would say, go. And as soon as they said, go, you had one goal. And that goal was to inflict as much pain as humanly possible on the other person until they yelled out in pain, mercy. And some of you are going, thank you so much, pastor, for doing this on National Lutheran Schools Week with children in the pews. It's great to teach them. So, so don't do this, okay? So that's, that's the, the rule. Don't do this at home or don't do this with brothers and sisters. But that's what we used to do. You inflict as much pain as possible. And what I realized is that there were times where you were on the inflicting side of that mercy war where you had the power and you had the ability to inflict that pain, and there were some times you were on the other end of it. That was a whole lot less fun. Sometimes we inflict pain, and other times we have that pain inflicted upon us. And in the midst of that feeling of pain, and not just in that game, but in the world we live in, there are many times where we just want to cry out, God, have mercy on me. God, do you see what I'm going through? And we, we live in a world that is filled with that, this, this tension, this division, this anxiety, the, this building up inside of us, hostility and injustice, a world that is on edge. And in the midst of that, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is what is your first impulse? Is your first impulse towards mercy? When I was in high school, I uh, was tutoring uh, uh, someone during lunch, or not during lunch, but after school in the lunchroom. And our lunchroom was actually part of our gymnasium. We didn't have a separate lunchroom, and so half of it would be set up for, for lunches. The other half would be set up as a place for after school people to go and shoot hoops or whatnot. And, and so I'm sitting there with my back turned to those that were shooting hoops, tutoring somebody in math, because I love math, and I love numbers, because... 
they don't change or talk back or do anything like that. So it's really easy to handle it. So I was talking about math and, and doing that, and I heard somebody behind me uh, making fun of me. So I looked who it was, and it was, it was somebody who was playing a game of one-on-one, and, and they were talking about me literally behind my back. Well, that didn't fly with me, and my first impulse was not towards mercy. My first impulse was, all right, I'm going to show you that you can't talk behind my back. So they had their back turned to me as they had the ball, and they were going to drive in for a layup. And I said, this one-on-one game would be a whole lot more fun, two-on-one, without them knowing it was a two-on-one game. So as the person drove in for a layup, I ran in from behind them, pushed down on their shoulder, reached over, and, and just blocked the ball out of bounds as hard as I possibly could. And then I just turned around and strolled away like nothing happened. Well, that didn't fly with them. Their impulse was not towards mercy either. So I went and sat back down, started tutoring until I got a basketball full speed at the back of my head. Which then caused my next impulse to not be towards mercy. And I'm a wrestler. And I know what a wrestler does, which is we know how to throw people. So I went up behind the person, picked them up and threw them, and it just kept escalating from there. Because neither of us had the impulse towards mercy. So how do you get that impulse? In a world that doesn't seem very merciful, how do we as God's people have the impulse towards mercy? This is what God calls us to. In Micah chapter 6, he says it this way. Would you read these words with me? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Or Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, read these words. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So notice in both those texts, What is supposed to define the life of a Christian? It's mercy, is it not? To love mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice because sacrifice comes out of mercy, but mercy is the starting place. So what is mercy? Well, we're going to operate with this definition of mercy over these four weeks. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. It's like that game of mercy. The person who is winning, it is within their power because they have that power or authority over that other person to punish or harm them or to show relief and a relief from that pain. That's what Jesus does. Right, Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But once again, if this is what God calls from us in the midst of the world we live in, how do we show, how do we have the impulse towards mercy? Well, we're going to look at that and come to an understanding of that through the parable of the the prodigal son, which we just heard about in our gospel reading. And I believe that as we read this, we're going to realize it's not just the parable of the prodigal son, but it's also the parable of the prodigal father. So if you want to follow along, you can open up the Bibles in front of you, page 875, page 875, as we look at this parable of the prodigal son and the prodigal father and understand that impulse towards mercy. Page 875, Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. 
Jesus tells this parable. And he, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And so the father divided his property between them. Now, I want you to think of the audacity of what the son has just asked of his dad. What the son has basically done is he's walked up to his dad and said, hey, uh, dad, you, you know the inheritance, you know what you've set aside in your will for me? I really wish you were dead so I could have it right now. Now, if you're the dad, how do you react to your son in that moment? In that culture, the way he could have reacted was get out. Right? Like, you are not my son, I disown you. You can change your last name because you are no longer one of my children. Get out. But the very first act of mercy that we see in this parable is that the father doesn't kick the son out. Instead, the father has compassion and mercy on his son in a way in which he actually divides things up and the son doesn't even leave right away. It says, it says not many days later, but it would have been days later. So the father doesn't even kick his son out after his son has, has asked for this ridiculous request. What an act of amazing mercy and compassion that the father has in the midst of the rebellion and the rejection of his son. But it does say, and not many days later, the son decides by himself, not because the father kicks him out. The younger son decided to gather his stuff and he takes a journey into a far country and there he squanders his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, in fact, that word prodigal, this is why it gets the title prodigal son, because prodigal actually means to spend everything. So when the son had spent everything prodigally, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Now so far what we have learned is we've learned the sin of the, of the son, the younger son. The sin of the younger son is the son believed he was entitled to all his dad's stuff. He didn't care about his father, he didn't love his father, he loved his dad's stuff and he felt that he was entitled to get his dad's stuff as the son and that's what he sought to claim for himself. And he takes the dad's stuff and he goes out and he recklessly spends it all. He, is, he lives prodigally, you could say. And after he does, he realizes he has nothing. And in that moment, he realizes, I, I need to survive somehow. I need to, to eat, I, I need to, to take care of myself, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and there's a famine in the land, and there's not enough for everybody, and so he hires himself out to become a slave, but he realizes how the world reacts. Because do you notice the words it says, at the very last few words we just read? It says, and no one gave him anything. That's a world that acts unmercifully, a world that takes without giving, and, and he understands what it means to be on the receiving side of pain and suffering in a game of mercy where you're crying out mercy and no one gives you anything. So the son thinks to himself, you know what, this world doesn't have that same kind of mercy that my father has. And we're going to see that he remembers his father's love. He remembers his father's provision and protection. He remembers his father who gave him everything. 
And the son realizes, and we're going to see this, that he is or feels that he is nothing because he has nothing. And there are many times where we feel that we are nothing because we have nothing to offer. Or we feel that we don't have enough to give and therefore we are not enough. And that the value we bring is, is the value that we have. And the son, as he starts to have this journey going, I remember how my father treated the higher servants who have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He says, I will arise, I will go to my father, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So instead, treat me as one of your hired servants. Says, I know my father treats hired servants better than this world who treats the lowest of the low. So I'm just going to go back and say to my dad, mercy. Have mercy on me. And so he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran, he embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And so the father said to his son, How dare you do this great evil to me? No, he didn't say that, did he? But how many of us would that have been our first impulse? How dare you have taken my stuff and spent it all? Where are the riches I gave you? How dare you come back to me begging after you rejected me and rebelled against me and you wished that I was dead so you could have my stuff? How dare you? That was not the impulse of the father though, was it? Do you see the impulse of the father to a son that never showed him mercy? He sees him He has compassion, he runs, he embraces, he tells the servant, quick, bring the best robe and the best ring and the best shoes and put them on him. Kill the fattened calf, let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive, he was lost, is found, and they began to celebrate. You see, this son who who ran away with bags filled with his dad's stuff, come back with bags that are filled, but not with his dad's stuff, but filled with regret and pain, and brokenness, and hurt, being left without any mercy. And in the midst of that, the father does something remarkable, something that would have been extremely surprising to anybody who is listening to this. And the father doesn't lecture his son, but he loves him. He runs to him, and he embraces him. I just want to spend just a moment on on how the father embraces the son in that moment. Because to understand how significant that is, you have to remember where the son came from. When the father sees his son, runs to his son, and embraces his son, where had the son just come from? The pig pen. So what did he smell like? And what did his clothes look like? What did he look like? Smelly, dirty, disgusting, probably almost unrecognizable. And when the father hugs his son, now what does the father smell like and look like? He looks just like the son, doesn't he? He takes on his son's stench, his smell, his dirt, his grime, his brokenness. You see, that's what mercy is. Because that's what the Father does to you. 
Scripture says, He who was without sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says, I will take your dirt and smell and stench on myself. And instead of turning to my servants and saying, now that I am dirty and smelly, come and bring me the best robe and bring me a new pair of shoes and bring me my ring. He says, instead, I will take on my son's filth and I want you to give him the best robes so that he no longer smells and I will. See, that's what Jesus did for us. You want to know what mercy looks like? It looks like two pieces of wood put together that someone might be nailed to and hang there for you and me. Mercy looks not like clenched fists that lash out in anger, but open hands nailed to a cross for you and for me. This is mercy. But it's not just the younger son in that moment who receives mercy, but we actually see that the, the, or the older son also receives that same mercy. As you continue to read, you hear about the older son. It says, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And the older son called to one of the servants and said, well, what is this? And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. So the father came out to him. Do you notice in both cases, the father sees the son and the father runs to the son. The older son in the field and the younger son on the road. But on both of them, the father runs to the son. And the father comes and entreats him. But he answered, the older son answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. But you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, do you notice he doesn't call him his brother, does he? He doesn't want that relationship. He says, this son of yours, he's not my brother, he's your son. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. And notice what the father says here, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He says, you need to see him differently. Not as my son, but you need to see him as your brother. You see, the older son, the older brother should have been running right next to his father, out to the road to embrace his brother and welcome him home. But the older son didn't get the father's heart just like the younger son because the older son also felt entitled to the father's stuff, but he felt entitled to the father's stuff because he felt that he had earned it. What we might call that is Christian moral entitlement because oftentimes we want to feel like the younger son, but many times we as Christians are actually the older one. God, God, do you see all that I do? Do you see my generosity? God, do you, do you know how much I sacrifice, how much I serve, how much of my life I give for the sake of what you are doing in your church? God, you should be more merciful to me. God, you should bless me more. I don't understand why others are blessed in a greater degree than I am blessed because look at everything that I do. I'm entitled to it. And so often Christians in the church tend to be more older brothers than younger brothers because we look at those that are more rebellious or walk away or live in a worldly fashion and we believe, God, I should be blessed greater than they are. And yet scripture reminds us that God sends rain both upon the just and the unjust equally. 
because that is the Father's heart of mercy. In fact, it's the disposition of mercy that the older brother didn't get. And the disposition of mercy is this. The older brother saw his younger brother coming back with empty bags that ought to have been filled with the father's stuff. And the father saw the younger son coming back with bags that were filled with brokenness and pain and suffering that needed to be emptied so that he might be filled once again. It's the disposition that we're called to. It's the reality that we're called to live into. In fact, what we see in this is three realities. And the first reality that we see in the prodigal son is that we are all lost in need of mercy, whether we are the younger son or the older son. We are all lost in need of mercy for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as we have all sinned, we don't deserve God's mercy. The younger son did not deserve to be welcomed back into the home. And the older son, in his anger and rejection of the father, said, I don't want to be a part of your feast. He, he rejects being a part of the family. And he doesn't deserve mercy. None of us deserve that mercy. But we all have a God who is waiting and willing to give us that mercy. In both of those cases, the father does the same thing. He sees his son... He runs to his son, he loves his son, and he invites his sons into the feast that he has prepared for them. And that's what God does for you, for me. You know that word prodigal means to spend everything. Can I ask you in this text, who is the person who spends more than anyone else? It's the father, isn't it? The father divides his property. The father gives to the younger son. The younger son comes back and the father gives him his best robe and his best ring and his best shoes and his best fattened calf. The father spends the money to throw the best feast ever. There is nobody who spends more than the father does out of his mercy for his children. And that's what God does for you. And that's what God does for me. Because you see, the impulse of the father is to show mercy to his children. The impulse of our father is to show mercy to you who rebel or reject God at various times in various ways. And our response, when we understand how prodigal, how lavishly God spends everything for us, well, our response is this. It's first to be just like that younger son and say, you know what, I am lost I have sinned against heaven and against you, that you treat me better than this world ever could. God, I have sinned against you to admit you are lost, to repent, and to come home. When Barna did this research, it said this, when it comes to accepting forgiveness for oneself, not all Christians find themselves ready or capable of doing so. More than one-fifth of practicing Christians report struggling with receiving forgiveness for something they have personally done. And if you struggle with receiving God's forgiveness for something that you have done in your past, you need to know that your Father lavishly has given everything for you. And the third response, to forgive and be merciful to others as the Father forgives and is merciful to you. During this same study, it said this, the last paragraph, it says, those who experience radical forgiveness have more willingness to forgive others 
Among those who say they have received forgiveness, 87% say they have given it in return, compared to 64% of those who do not feel that they have received it. You can't extend to others what you have not received yourself. My son David loves to come to his sister's basketball games. So uh, St. John West Bend, our 6th, 7th, and 8th grade team played in that tournament. And, and this weekend, our 5th graders are playing the St. John West Bend tournament. And, and my son David loves to go to all of those tournaments and all of the games that he possibly can go to. But I've learned the reason why he likes to go to them. And it's not because he wants to watch basketball. See, my son has figured out that at every tournament and almost every game that there are concessions. And he wants food. So we will barely walk in the door and my son will look at me and go, Hey, Dad, Dad, can I, can I get pizza? Can, can I get a water? Can I get Gatorade? Can I get some candy? Can, I don't care. He just lists almost everything that's on that list. and go, go, Dad, can I get some money? To which then I will pull my wallet out more often than not. I will open it up and I will do this to him. (laughs) And I will say to him almost the same exact words every single time, I can't give you what I don't have. That's mercy. You can't give to others what you don't have. And if we don't understand and haven't received that mercy that God so freely gives to us, how could we ever extend that to anybody else? But when you understand the mercy of your Father in heaven, when you understand how He runs to you and He embraces you, dirt, brokenness, stench of sin and everything, and He takes that upon Himself. When you understand the mercy of a God who has done everything for you, you will understand that the impulse of mercy, just as it is for God, should be for us not to lash out in anger or in vengeance, but to reach out in grace and love. In fact, what I would say is to understand mercy, we have to understand mercy in 2D, two dimensions. And the first dimension that we're talking about today is we need to understand that that mercy from the Father to you is greater than anything you could ever share to others. But the reason you can show mercy to others is because God has first shown mercy to you. A prodigal mercy. A mercy that is willing to spend everything for you, so that you might know no matter what you have done, no matter how you might have hurt others, no matter how you might have hurt God in thought, word, and deed, that God has forgiven you and he has made you new and he has shown you more mercy than anyone could ever show on the cross of Jesus Christ so that you can go and show mercy. In fact, over these next three weeks, that's now what we're going to talk about that we who have had our lives filled with mercy can then say to others, as I have received mercy, sure, I can freely give it to you because God's just going to keep filling me up with more and more and more. We're going to talk about how do we then show that mercy in our homes, in our church, in our community. We're going to ask questions such as this. Moms and dads, if you have a teenage son or daughter and you have a curfew for them, say 11 o'clock, and it's 11.30, 12 o'clock, 
12.30, 1 o'clock, and no one's home yet. And finally, at 2 a.m., your child walks in the door as you're sitting there on the couch. What is your first impulse? Is it to lecture or to love? What is the first thing that you are ready to do? To embrace them because they came home safely? Or to tell them how much of an inconvenience it was to you and what they did? Then we're going to ask the question, okay, if it's supposed to be to reach out in love, then where does accountability come in? Where does responsibility come in? How do we speak the truth and love in those moments? We're going to wrestle with that. Or if your child's on the basketball court, this is my own personal confession time, and your child makes a grievous mistake on the basketball court or on the soccer field, is your first impulse from the stands to yell out, what are you doing? Or do you realize that they probably already have figured out how bad of a mistake they made? And in that moment, they don't need a scowling parent, but they need one who is there to encourage them because they're already beating themselves up inside. And they need someone to reach out and love in that moment. What's your first impulse? Because God's first impulse in our scars, in our brokenness, in our rebellion, in our rejection, His first impulse is to reach out in love to you that you might reach out in love to others. In Jesus' name.